0: Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Psalm 6. Take your Bible here and open it to Psalm 6. I'll be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, which is not going to be too different from your translation if you're using a different translation at home. Most of the Bethany Baptist Church members, who I'll refer to as BBC, they um, have a Christian Standard Bible that we use. Psalm 6. Hear the word of the Lord. For the choir director with stringed instruments according to Sheminith, a Psalm of David. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are shaking. My whole being is shaken with terror. And you, Lord, how how long? Turn, Lord, rescue me. Save me because of your faithful love. For there is no remembrance of you in death. Who can thank you in Sheol? I am weary from my groaning. With my tears, I dampen my bed and drench my couch every night. My eyes are swollen from grief. They grow old because of my enemies, all of my enemies. Depart from me, all evildoers, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea for help. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and shake with terror. They will turn back and suddenly be disgraced. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father, with our Bibles open before us now, we ask for your help. We ask for help to think about your word faithfully. We ask for insight. We ask for eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to feel what you're saying here. Help us to see the glories of Christ, the glory of who you are, God. We pray for your Holy Spirit's power. We want to abide in your word and let your words abide in us that we might bear much fruit. For those who are suffering, Lord, we pray that you would give them great strength and help from this passage. And those who are not currently in a season of trial and disorientation, we pray that you would help them to hide these words in their hearts, to give them strength for the day of trouble. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How do we honor God when we feel convicted and guilty? When you feel sinful, when you feel like you've dishonored God, how do, how do you move forward in your relationship with God? Or to make it even, to, 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 to complicate things, what about, or how do we honor God when our guilt combines with, the guilt, um, the guilt of our sins combines with the pressures of the world, So you have the pressure of the world, you got the problems in life that are not sinful, then you got your own sin, and maybe you have the sins of others, and then you have demons, and they're all pressing on your soul. How do you honor God in moments like that? We all want to honor God if we're Christian. We want to help others. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves, and we want to live, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we want to do all to God's glory in our painful, pandemic-filled, and broken world. But the sin and brokenness... And the curse and devils press on our souls the way that gravity never stops pressing us to the surface of the earth. It never stops. The pressure never stops. It just keeps coming in different ways and different waves. But there's a constant pressure from our own souls and sin, from the sins of others and brokenness, and from demons. There is no break. Now, here in Psalm 6, David is distraught because of his enemies. Look at verses 6 and 7. I am weary from my groaning. With my tears, I dampen my bed and drench my couch every night." So David is groaning, he's groaning so much, he's tired of being tired. He's weary of being weary, he's tired of his groaning, but he keeps groaning, he has nothing, he can't do anything else except groan in his weariness. He's crying, dampening his bed, so he leaves his bed because it's too wet, he goes to the couch, he drenches his couch, he can't stop crying. He says in verse 7, My eyes are swollen from grief. They grow old because of all my enemies. So here's despair. He's distraught because of his enemies. Depressed, discouraged, lonely, fearful, anxious, exhausted. And sometimes depression and tears can come without even knowing why you're crying. You're just crying. How how can we proceed with God when we are debilitated by pressure and pain from our enemies, from the brokenness of this world, from these outside pressures pressing in on us? Now, David's problem is deeper than than the problems from the outside. It goes all the way to the inside. Look at verses 2 and 3. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, for my bones are shaking. My whole being is shaken with terror. His bones are shaking. His whole being is terrified. One Bible commentator says he's terrified out of, it means to be terrified out of one's senses. As we move from, you know, we've been going through the Psalms, so if you move from Psalms 1 and 2, Psalm 1's, Psalm, Psalms 1 and 2 are perfectly ordered. There's a righteous, there's a sinful. The one who meditates on God's word and the one who doesn't. They get judged, the other one flourishes. Great, beautiful, orderly. In Psalm 2, there's God and his Messiah. There's the enemies of the Messiah from the Gentiles and you're either on God's side or against God's side. God's side wins and those who with him, uh, who with him are blessed and those who aren't are not blessed and that's Psalm 2. So blessing with God, cursing and destruction without God. Everything's neat, right? Evil, destruction, good, order, flourishing. But then you get to Psalm 3 through 7, and you get this mixture of, well, what about when the good person is suffering? What about when when the good person is under distress? Or when the good person has sinned, actually. So from Psalms 3, 4, 5, and 6, you have a progression from David being strong and oriented, even in trials, all the way to the point of, of, um, of, of fearing God, not fearing God, fearing trials, of being disoriented to the point where you get Psalm 6, and Psalm 6 is sort of the climax of his disorientation. He can't even see his way forward. He's just crying all the time, crying on his bed, crying on the couch, weary from being, from groaning all day because of his enemies. His bones are shaking. His anxiety is taking over. He can't see his way forward. He's in despair. He's caught in a spiral that just keeps going lower and lower and lower. How can we proceed when the problem is no longer just merely out there, but in here, in here? In our minds, in our bodies, our bones shaking, in our souls. And what if we get stuck in this inner turmoil forever? What if there is no way out? What if this is our lot forever? That's scary to think about, that we might shrink back from God and just be stuck, not only isolated from God's people and others, but even isolated from God himself? Scary thought. Now, we don't have to be passive or pushed away from God in our pain, in our struggle. Even when we can't see our way forward and we're disoriented, we don't have to stay there. We can draw near to God. We can gain confidence. Even if it's a little bit of confidence, we can gain some confidence. God will help us move forward step by step by step. And Psalm 6 is one of those psalms in deep distress that helps us Maybe not see our full way forward, but even just see the next step and the next step to keep proceeding with God. So here's the main goal. The main goal is proceed with God, proceed with God when you can't see your way forward so that you experience his salvation. I'll say it one more time. Proceed with God when you can't see your way forward so that you experience his salvation. Well, how shall we proceed? There's two responses here to pressure. Pray under pressure. When you can't see your way forward, when you're under this pressure, pray under pressure and pronounce judgment. Pronounce the coming judgment. When you're under pressure, pray to God and pronounce the coming judgment to others. So pray to God, pray under pressure, that's verses 1 through 7, and pronounce the coming judgment is verses 8 through 10. Let's look here at the first one, pray under pressure from verses one through seven. And when you look here at praying under pressure in verses one through seven, we we learn three lessons about prayer. Pray for mercy, pray with lament, and pray for salvation. Look at verse one as we look at pray for mercy. Verse one, pray for mercy. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not discipline me in your wrath. So what, do, what does David need mercy from? What do we need mercy from? Look at it again. Do not rebuke, Lord you, Lord, you. Don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. So who does David need mercy from? He needs mercy from God, from God's, from God's anger, from God's wrath. So in the first part of verse one, he needs mercy from angry rebuke from God's angry rebuke. Don't rebuke me in your anger. And the word anger there is the same word as anger used in Psalm 2, 5, where it says "Then he speaks to them, talking about the Gentiles, the enemies of God and his Messiah. God speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. In Psalm 2, 5, that word anger is the same. So, so David is saying, God, don't be angry with me. Don't rebuke me in your anger. And he's not talking about a fatherly anger that's still ultimately for them. David's scared of God's wrath, God's judgment, that God would ultimately judge and banish and punish David with condemnation. God, don't rebuke me in your anger. I understand I need rebuke. I understand I sin, but don't rebuke me in your anger, in your wrathful anger, where there's no mercy. God, I need mercy from your angry rebuke. Give me your fatherly, loving rebuke, but not your angry judgment, condemnation, condemning, ultimately condemning rebuke. But then he doesn't only need mercy from angry rebuke. In the second part of verse one, he needs mercy from wrathful discipline. Do not discipline me in your wrath. He doesn't want God's, again, there's that fatherly discipline, Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. You you could read about God's fatherly discipline for his saints is loving, it's painful, it hurts, but it's loving and it's for our good. David doesn't mind that. We as Christians shouldn't mind that kind of discipline. I mean, we mind it because it hurts, but we shouldn't ultimately despair over that. What we should despair over is if God disciplines us with his wrathful discipline, his condemnation. Now, David is praying this because David feels guilty. Now, what was David's sin? We don't know what David's sin was here in Psalm 6. There's no instruction or clues here in the prescript to the Psalm. But if you take Psalm 3 through 7 as a unit, or not maybe as a unit, but I mean, you're meant to read through the Psalms. So If you're reading Psalm 3, you're thinking about Absalom and the story and David's distress. Then you read Psalm 4, you're still thinking about distress. Psalm 5, distress. Psalm 6, distress. If you're, if you're just reading through the Psalms and you're keeping Psalm 3 in your mind as you're reading through, you'll still keep David's story with Absalom in your mind. That's not for sure the story here, but it's a good story to think about here because if you're reading through the Psalms, it's not like you read one a week on a Sunday, though that's what we've been doing. But if you're reading through the Psalms, you'd think of Absalom's story with David. Now, in David's story with his son Absalom, if you don't know the story, Absalom is David's third oldest son, and he ends up rebelling against David and, and convincing the majority of the Israelites to follow him and rebel against the king. And so there's this civil war that breaks out in Israel because David's son betrays him and rebels. And David was on the run. And so his, his stress in, in Psalm 3 is this running from, from Absalom. What was David's sin, though? Let's think about that. Um, if David is feeling guilty, and it could be, again, any kind of incident here, but if we think about the Absalom story and rebellion, what was David's sin? David committed adultery before that. In second, So in 2 Samuel 15 is Absalom's rebellion. In 2 Samuel uh, 11, David commits adultery, basically coercing a woman to sleep with him, and then he gets her pregnant. So then he tries to cover up the pregnancy, which is lying, another sin, so adultery, lying. And then he gets the husband to try to sleep with her to cover up the pregnancy. He won't sleep with her, and so he ends up conspiring to kill the husband. So there's murder. So there's... Adultery, lying, murder, and after murder, um, he gets a judgment from God, not not um, condemnation, but the sword will not depart from David's house, God says, and one of his own neighbors will end up sleeping with his wives publicly the way that David slept with this man's wife privately, and that's, that's David's judgment. And so as the story moves on, um, there's turmoil in the house, and one of David's sons rapes uh, one of David's daughters, a half sister of the son, and David gets angry, but he doesn't. He doesn't work for justice. He doesn't uh, execute justice on the son who who, who raped his half sister. And then not only that, now the other brother Absalom, who's the full brother of the sister Tamar, he ends up murdering his half brother who raped his sister. And David gets angry, and Absalom runs away. And so David is passive with Amnon, his son who raped his daughter. He's passive with Absalom. Absalom runs away. Um, David brings Absalom back reluctantly. When Absalom comes back, David doesn't give him a full embrace. He's indecisive on should he embrace his son or not. He's kind of torn. And so because of this sinful, foolish indecision of David, the rebellion breaks out. So why was there rebellion? Adultery, lying, murder, passive fathering and passive leadership and passive judging. David has all kinds of sins. And so here he's feeling guilt. We don't have the exact sin, but he's saying, God, I've sinned in so many ways. Don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. So we learn here to pray for mercy. When you're in sin, what a sweet thing that we just pray for mercy. We don't have to fix it. We can't fix it. Maybe we have to repent. And 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 make restitution in some ways, but that doesn't pay for sin. All we do is pray for God's mercy and grace. That's the first thing. Pray for mercy. Secondly, though, here in, in this idea of praying under pressure is praying with lament. Look at verse three. My whole being is shaken with terror. And you, Lord, how long? I just want to focus on that word. Lord, how long? That is a prayer of lament. How long, Lord? If you look at Psalm 1 and two, you get a similar thing, a similar prayer here. Psalm 1 and two, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemy dominate me? That's a prayer of lament. Just feeling, just mourning and just crying out in weariness and groaning. Lord, how long will this happen? That's what lament is. It's crying out to God in pain, in sorrow, in mourning. Lord, how long until you end this pandemic? How long until you break cancer? How long until we have glorified bodies? How long until people stop sinning and belittling your name? How long until, how long until you end all these false teachers and false religions and secularism and atheism, which belittles your name and deceives your churches? That's a prayer of lament. And here David is praying, Lord, how long will I be in this state of disorientation? You know, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's, it's wise for us to, to lament and pray with mourning. Now, a lament has three parts moving from negative to positive. It doesn't always move to completely positive. Psalm 88 is one of the darker, darkest psalms of lament. But it starts with, a three well, it has three things. So it starts with crying out to God. God, help me. How long, Lord? This situation is terrible. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, name your brokenness. Name the pain that's in your life and in this world that's, that's pressing in on your soul. Cry out to God and just name it and say, God, how long until you end this? After crying out to God, ask for his help. God, help me, save me, deliver me. Ask God for help when you lament and then respond to the Lord in trust and in praise, which is what we're gonna see here in this Psalm. So cry out to God, ask for his help, respond in trust and in praise. God doesn't always answer. When you ask how long, Lord, the Lord doesn't say five minutes, five months, three years. Oftentimes, he doesn't answer us with a specific answer. It's still good for us to ask, how long, Lord, end this? But God delays. Why does God delay? Now, God doesn't give us comprehensive knowledge of the specificity of his plans. And so whenever we, ha- we could have a general idea of, of why things happen, but we don't know Exactly why. We we know that God is good, He's going to do things for His purposes, for the good of His church, for the spread of the gospel, for the glory of His name, for us to encourage other people. But we don't always know specific reasons why we go through the brokenness we go through. And so God delays. And though we don't know the specific answer why God delays to answer us, or why God delays to end the suffering and brokenness and pain, we know this: God delays for our delight. God delays for our delight. He loves us. He wants us to enjoy Him and enjoy Him in this world with people, with His people. But in His wisdom, oftentimes He delays for our delight. So when you pray under pressure, we pray for mercy, we pray with lament. And this last thing, which is verses two through seven, we pray for salvation. David prays for salvation, we should pray for salvation. Look at his prayers here. In verse two, be gracious to me. There's a prayer, be gracious to me. Heal me, turn to me, rescue me, save me. It's a prayer for salvation. Now, salvation as Christians, New, Test- New Covenant, New Testament Christians, we think of salvation as salvation from sin and death, eternal death, judgment of God and hell, which is great and true. David is not against that, but that's not the first thing in his mind. In the Old Testament, they're often praying for salvation from death from the first death. And so he's saying, God, save me from my my dreadful predicament. Save me from my bones shaking. Save me, heal me from this terrible situation I'm in here on this earth right now. And we could hear echoes of final salvation here and spiritual and eternal salvation from the second death as well, but that's not the first thing in David's mind. But let's ask this question. Why, Why should God save, why should God save Sinful David, why should God save sinful PJ or sinful you if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian? God can save you. Why should God save you if you're a sinner like me, like David? Well, David bases this request on three realities in verses um, three realities here. Why should God save sinners like us, like David? Number one, he bases this on God's compassion. Sorry for all the numbering here, but um, for those of you who are taking notes, I could hear the complaints now. Pray for salvation for your sin based on God's compassion. Look at verses 2 and 3. Why does he pray? Be gracious to me, why? For I'm weak. Heal me, why? For my bones are shaking. My whole being is shaken with terror. So, God, have compassion on me. I'm weak. I'm shaking. I'm shaking to the core. I have no peace. Verses 6 and 7 I'm weary from my groaning. I can't stop crying. My eyes are swollen from grief. I can't see forward. I'm my. It's, you can translate, my eyes grow dark or dim. I can't see my way forward. I'm lost. Lord, help me in my grief because of my enemies, because of my sin. Save me. Have compassion on me. David prays this because he knows God cares about the pain of his people. He cares about David's pain. He cares about your pain. He loves us. He's compassionate as a father has compassion on his children. But not only is it based on his compassion, secondly, he prays this based on God's covenant love. Look at verse 4. Turn, Yahweh, rescue me, save me because of your faithful love. I wonder if you're a member of Bethany Baptist Church, if you've seen the two pointers to the covenant here. Turn, Yahweh, rescue me, save me because of your faithful love. And the word Yahweh that I'm using, that's the personal name of God, which is capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles, turn Lord. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. God said, I am that I am to to Moses in Exodus 3, 14 and 15. He says, my name is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I would bless his seed and his offspring and a nation and I'd bless all the peoples of the earth through this offspring. I made this promise to Abraham. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to do it. I'm faithful to my covenant. I will bless and save my people from all the peoples of the earth, all ethnic people." And so David can trust in God's faithful covenant love. But then also it says, save me because of your faithful love. That word faithful love is the word for the covenant love of God, the loyal love of God. The ESV says the steadfast love of God. The I don't know if it's the King James or the NASB, the loving kindness of God. I've told you this before. I'll say it again because it's a great way. Sally Lloyd-Jones Jones brings it up in her book, the Jesus Storybook Bible here, which you guys have seen before. It's a great book for your kids. She calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God's love never stops. It never gives up. It never breaks. It's always there. It's forever there. And so David can base his confidence, God save me as a sinner, because you're compassionate, because you're a covenant-keeping, covenant-loving God. And the third um, reason for his confidence is in verse five. Now, this one is a little bit stickier, so let's let's uh, put our thinking caps on here and and meditate on this. Verse five says, "Why should God? Why turn to me, Lord? Why rescue me? Why save me? For there is no remembrance of you in death. Who can thank you in Sheol? Who can thank you in the grave?" If I die, I can't speak anymore. I'm laying in a coffin. Picture my funeral right here, church building, coffin right here. can't speak. I can't praise God. I can't thank God. I can't in that body remember God right there. And we're made to praise God. We're made to thank God publicly. We thank God every Sunday night. We share blessings. We thank God with each other. We remember him in the Lord's Supper. His body Given for us and his blood spilled for us in the new covenant. We remember him. And yet here David is saying, Lord, if you don't save me, if you just let me die from my inner turmoil or from my enemies, if I die, I can't praise you. So what what is David basing his confidence that God would save him? It's on God's God-centeredness, God's centrality. God's passion for his praise this is good news God is passionate for his glory God God's passion for his remembrance and for his praise is the foundation of his faithful love to us it's the foundation of his compassion to us so we say God save me because of your compassion save me because of your covenant love well why does God have covenant love why is God compassionate Because God is central in God's heart and mind. God cares about his glory. And David knows that and says, God, if I die, I can't praise you. Don't you care about your glory? Isn't your love for us an expression of a desire and delight in your glory being shown up and showing off to the nations forever and ever? That is why God does what he does. Out of his infinite love for us in in sweeping us into the Trinitarian joy in the glory of God. God wants to pour out his love towards sinners, not only to save them, but to pour out his own joy and happiness in them to the point where we're almost ready to burst in joy and celebration. That's God's love. But when we're in Sheol, when we're in the place of the dead, David is saying, I can't praise you there, so save me from death. Now, this is strange, especially for us New Testament, New Covenant Christians, because we know that we, know, we have a better picture of the, of the afterlife. Now, David, I have a question here when I, when I read this. Why do the psalmist, why does David and other psalmists, why do they argue that God should save them based on the fact that the dead don't remember God and won't thank God and won't praise God? I mean, listen to Psalm 88, verses 10 through 12. Do you work wonders from the, for the dead? He's praying to God. Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Will your faithful love be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon. Another name for the grave. Will your wonders be known in the darkness? Or your righteousness, your righteousness in the land of oblivion? The argument of the psalmist is, if I die, I can't praise you among your people in the grave. Now the psalmists are, this is the word of God. So they're, they're right. I mean, this is biblically true. It's poetic, but it's biblically true, but it's the old Testament as well. So they don't have a complete picture. They don't have a, I mean, the new Testament reveals more truth as, as, as God continues to reveal things ultimately in Jesus Christ and his apostles. So uh, they do have a true view of the afterlife, but it's an incomplete view. Now their point is true and valid that you cannot praise God on earth to others when you're dead. You can't do it. Psalm 30, verse 9 says, What gain is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your truth? Now, we know we will praise God in heaven. Bodies in the ground um, are um, to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5. So we will praise God, but we won't praise God here on this earth. I can't come here to, to Bethany Baptist Church's building and come here among my covenant church family and praise God to you and preach to you and, and hear you preach and gospelize me back. We can't do that when I'm dead. So that, that's true. But, but the, the psalmist here lacks the, the New Testament revelation and understanding that when Christ comes, he brings in that joy even now, that even when we die, we can actually be with the Lord Jesus in heaven. They don't They don't know that New Testament revelation yet. So the psalmist seem to say that there's a particular benefit and opportunity to praise God here on earth because they can praise God among his people on earth. When they're dead, they can't do that. But notice in Psalm 30 verse nine, it says, what gain is there in my death? Now, when you hear gain, what New Testament verse do you think of? He's saying, there is no gain when I die because I can't praise you among your people. I can't proclaim your truth to people. So there is no, like what gain is there? Not much. But what New Testament verse are you thinking of? Say it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. That's what Paul said. But Paul said, you know, to, to, to depart and to be with the Lord is far better. But then he says in Philippians 1, but it is beneficial for me to stay here for your sake. So I'm going to stay here in this, in this world. Philippians 1. Let me look at it exactly here. Philippians 1, verse 22 and following, he says here, um, he says, to remain in the flesh is necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. So Paul's saying actually the same thing as the psalmist in the sense he knows that dying is gain. He has a fuller picture of what happens after death even before the resurrection of our our glorified bodies. But he agrees with the psalmist. If I die, I can't help the church grow. I can't help spread the gospel here anymore. I'm dead. I'm gone. I can't praise you anymore in live real time. Here among people who need encouragement and progress and joy in the faith. And so similar to the psalmist, we can pray, God, save me so that I can keep proclaiming your name so I can keep helping my church family and other Christians grow in their faith so I can help non-Christians hear the gospel and maybe believe the gospel and repent and trust in Jesus. So cry out to God, brothers and sisters, in your pain. Cry out to God in your suffering. Remember last week, And if you weren't here last week in our Zoom meeting or you haven't seen the video yet, I encourage you to go to our Vimeo page, our church website, and listen to the sermon by Ben, Pastor Ben, um, on Matthew 14, verses 19, uh, 29 through 31, on on Christ um, saving Peter from um, drowning. Peter's walking on water and then he drowns. He starts sinking and he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus comes immediately and picks him up and says, why did you doubt you have little faith. But notice Peter is crying out, Lord, save me in desperation. Cry out to God in your desperation. You can't see your way forward. Just cry out to God. God, save me. Deliver me. Rescue me. Or you could even, and even in crying out, you can trust God like Martha when, when her brother Lazarus died and, and Jesus said, don't you believe in the resurrection? And he says, I know he'll rise in the last day. In John eleven twenty four. 24. Cry out to God, Lord. I know that there's a resurrection. I can't see it right now. I can't feel the joy of the resurrection. I'm so overwhelmed with grief, but I know there's a resurrection. I know, as it says later, actually the next verse here, John eleven twenty five. Jesus says, "I am the resurrection and the life." Lord, I know you're the resurrection and the life. So cry out to God. Even sing to God songs like "Just a Closer Walk with Thee." Though this world with toils and snares, if I falter, Lord, who cares? Who with me my burden shares? None but thee, dear Lord. None but thee. Just a closer walk with thee. Granted, Jesus is my plea. Daily walking close to thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. What is your reaction when you are in a sticky situation that's overwhelming? What is the first thing you do? Who do you Run to? Who's the first person you run to? How many things do you do before you go to God and lay yourself bare before His Word and His ways? You're going to face all kinds of trials in life trials in your family, trials in the church, trials at work, trials at school, trials of loneliness, mental health trials. Relationship trials, relational trials, financial trials, health trials, bereavement trials, you're going to be facing trials in this world. So pray to God in your troubles. Let the God later mentality be banished from your mind. Don't think, God later, what can I do now to fix this? Who can I call? What can I do to get my mind off of this? How can I distract myself? Don't do the God later thing. Do the God first thing. God is not a break in case of emergency, last resort. He is your first call, your first friend, your first security. Children, listen up, children. Children, David was struggling here. He was scared. He was sad. So children, I want you to know that in your pain, God is telling you, even as you run to mommy and daddy, go to God in your pain. Ask God for help. Cry out to God. God hears you. God knows you're there. God knows you. Pray to God. Pray to the Lord Jesus to help you. God gave you parents and other church family to help you, but we can only help you because God helps us. And God can help you even apart from us, apart from adults and your parents who love you. Brothers and sisters, Let's pray to God. Let's take our tears to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says, Let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers and of weeping as a constant dropping of Im- importunate intercession, which will wear its way right surely into the very heart of mercy, despite the stony difficulties which obstruct the way. Let your liquid prayers go to God. God cares. He promises and fulfills. He saves us, he forgives us, he's patient and merciful. If you're not a Christian, I wanna invite you right now to God's salvation. God wants to save you from your sins. God is faithful in his covenant love and he's inviting you into a covenant relationship with him because we've actually broken the covenant. Here's the gospel message. If you hear nothing else, just listen to this gospel message. This is the gospel in a minute or less. God made us, he made you and me in a covenant relationship with him to enjoy him as his image bearers in this world, to enjoy him and to enjoy this world and to enjoy other people. But we have rebelled against God. We have rejected God and said, God, I don't want you. I want my friends. I want my relationships. I want the other things in this world. And because of that, because of that, we are sinners, we're guilty, and we're damned. We are condemned. We have broken our covenant with God. And yet here's the good news. That God, in his covenant love, his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to David, and to those who are in Christ, his his covenant promise to sinners is that he sends his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. Jesus, the Messiah, dies on the cross. He lives the life we should have lived. He dies on the cross for sinners like you and me, and he rises from uh, from the grave, from the dead, so that... If you repent from your sins and if you repent from your own goodness and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, trust in God's son for your salvation, he will save you. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll give you his Holy Spirit. He'll begin to live in you and begin to transform you all the way until the final resurrection when we will all rise from the dead, who are all those who are in Christ and enjoy God and each other in the new earth forever and ever and ever. On this earth, renewed forever and ever and ever. That's the good news of the gospel. And if we don't repent and trust in Jesus, then we are still condemned in our sins, as we'll talk about here in the next point. Church family, you must not only do one of these things, you must do both of these things together. You must walk together in our pain and disorientation, and you must walk toward God. If you only walk, um, if you only walk together but not walk toward God, then you'll sympathize with each other, but we won't bring each other towards God and we won't have any lasting help and strength, no solid rock to stand on in our disorientation and trials. So we should sympathize with and listen to each other, but we don't only walk together. We need to walk toward God. If we only walk toward God and not walk together, then we're going to say, you don't want to walk with God? Fine, I'm leaving you. And we won't, we won't patiently bear with one, eno- one, one another and help each other along. So let's walk together as a church family and let's walk toward God together. If you're not if you're a Christian, you're not part of a church family, you really should join a church family. Why don't you reach out to us and we'd love to recommend a church to you in your area? So here's the main goal proceed with God when you can't see your way forward so that you experience his salvation. We proceed with God by praying under pressure. That was number one and number two now. And lastly, pronounce pronounce the coming punishment, verses eight to ten. Pronounce the coming punishment. Look at verse eight. Depart from me, all evildoers. Verse 10, all my enemies will be ashamed and shake with terror. They will turn back and suddenly be disgraced. Here, David is pronouncing to his enemies and then to everyone, including the covenant community, just as a general pronouncement, that his enemies will fall. They will be separated from the king. Now, David is praying and pronouncing this from his pain. Maybe he's, he's got a little bit more clarity, a little bit more confidence here. There's a transition here, right? He's like in this pain, crying, can't stop crying. And then all of a sudden, depart from me, evildoers. All of you are going down. How can David do this in his pain? He does it because of God's love, as we've been talking about for the last few minutes here. But here's what I want you to know about your pain. Your pain is not only about what God is telling you. Now, God is speaking to you in your pain. God screams to us in our pain. God whispers to us in our prosperity and screams to us in our pain, some have said. It's like God's megaphone to get our attention. So our pain is for God to speak to us and and, and help transform us, but it's not only for for you. It's not only for me. Your pain is designed as a platform to proclaim the judgment of God and the salvation of God. Your pain is the platform for proclamation. Proclamation for proclaiming the goodness of God and the judgment of God in Christ. So what do we pronounce? What does David pronounce? He pronounces three things. He pronounces separation from the king, the king, God's king. That's in verse 8. In verse 10, he pronounces future... future. Future physical, emotional, and spiritual terror in verse 10, the first part of verse 10. and the second part of verse 10, he proclaims future disgrace and shame at the judgment. So look look at this first one. He he says, you will be separated from the king, from God's king and his people. Look at verse 8. Depart from me, all evildoers. Now, David is the messianic king. And as he's the messianic king, he's saying, you will be separated from me. Depart from me. Get away from me. I am God's and I am the leader of God's people. And you're not on my side. You're not on God's people's side. So depart from me. You're banished, the way Absalom was actually banished. Now, why, does, why, why is David so confident that God will banish his enemies? Look at verse eight. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. God hears his King's weeping. He hears the cries, the groaning, even when we don't have words to say, the liquid tears are prayers, the groanings are prayers. God hears the groaning. God hears the weeping not even the words, just the weeping, and he cares. But God does only, he's not only gonna answer David's prayer against his enemies because he hears David's cries, he actually hears David's words. Look at the next part, verse nine. The Lord has heard my plea for help. He hears the king's prayer. And this is what Jesus tells us, doesn't he? Ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. Ask for specific things and you'll receive what you ask for. Seek for specific grace and you'll find it. Knock on specific doors of opportunity that you're seeking, ask God for it, knock on it, ask God for it, and the door will be open to you. Because God hears the pleas of his people. hears the plea of David here. God deliver me, God save me, God judge my enemies. And so David says, I know God's going to answer because of his covenant love. And therefore, you enemies, you will depart from me. So he hears the king's weeping, he hears the king's prayer, and and then he receives or he accepts the king's prayer. Look at verse 9 again. The Lord accepts my prayer. So my weeping, my plea, my prayer, the Lord accepts my prayer. And it's not because David is sinless, as we've talked about already. God can accept the prayers of sinners because God is gracious. God is faithful to his covenant love which is consummated in the blood of Jesus Christ. When he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, Christ's death guarantees God's covenant love to God's covenant people. And so God will accept our prayers. That's why we pray in the name of who? We pray in Jesus' name, because it's in Christ's name that our prayers are accepted before the Lord. Now, David did not know Jesus' name, but he's praying according to that same covenant promise before Jesus came. So David trusts God's covenant to Israel and his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David trusts that the threat that the serpent would be crushed in Genesis 3 and then promised a blessing in Genesis 12 to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's going to come through the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49 with a scepter, the king. David knows that the king before him in Israel was not from Judah. He was from Benjamin, Saul, and David is the king from Judah. And it said in all the way back before the Exodus in Genesis 49 verse 10 that, that the scepter the ruler of God would come from Judah. So David, and then David gets the Davidic promise in 2 Samuel 7, and he realizes, wait a minute, God promises a blessing through Abraham to crush the serpent. In Genesis 49, he's coming from Judah. I'm from Judah, I'm the first king. And then God promises me that I'll never have a descendant of mine not sitting on the throne, but my, my dynasty will last forever. <gasps> I must be part of this line to fulfill these covenant promises. And David believes that. Even when he's crying his eyes out and can't see his way forward, even when his son is trying to kill him and he's on the run, he believes that God will keep his promise because it's not just about David's life. David lived around 1,000 BC. 1,400 years uh, before that, I mean 400 years before that, he delivered uh, Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt with his covenant promise. And he made the promise 1,000 years before that or so, 800 years to Abraham. Abraham. And so David knows that these promises go all the way back from him, 400 years back to, uh, to Moses, 1,000 years back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then before that, all the way back to the Garden of Eden with the threat. David trusts in God's promise. So when you're crying in your pain, you're praying to God, you're meditating on God's word, and what happens? As you meditate on God's word, what comes by hearing? As you're thinking and hearing God's word, faith comes by Hearing the word of the Messiah, the word of God in the Messiah. So here we see that that David gets comfort in the pain. His confidence comes, his confidence and strength come in the pain, in the trial, while he waits for God. While he's still somewhat disoriented. Faith comes by hearing, so we meditate on Christ. So when you are disoriented and you can't see your way forward, you can't think and concentrate for more than five minutes in your pain, whatever minute, if you could concentrate for one minute, meditate on God's word and pray so that faith would come by hearing because confidence comes before comfort. Confidence in God comes before the final comfort. Now this confidence is due to an answering touch from God, a pouring out of his grace through faith. As, as, as David meditates on God's truth. That's what, Psalm, that's what Romans 5.5 5 says. In our affliction, the love of God is poured out into our hearts. God from heaven pours out into our hearts his love while we are in our affliction. As we trust in Christ, as we trust in God's word. God pours out his love. He gives us confidence in his word. He gives us more and more faith. And our doubt deteriorates. Our doubt deteriorates before our deliverance, before our final deliverance. And so um, the, the, ju- the judgment he pronounces is the judgment of departing from, being separated from the king. The, the second and third judgments here in verse 10 is the future physical, emotional, and spiritual terror. Look like at verse 10, all my enemies will be ashamed and shake with terror. That's the same word that was in, in verse three. David was shaking with terror and now his enemies will be shaken with terror. Now this shaking with terror is not just the inner consternation that David felt. If you look at Psalm chapter two, verse five, again, God speaks to the Gentiles in his anger and he terrifies them. He shakes them with terror in his wrath. So here the enemies of David will be shaken, not just that they'll feel inner turmoil. They will, physical, emotional, and spiritual terror, but they will be terrorized by God's wrath. That's the judgment. Judgment that God will pour out his condemnation on you. And it's not just the physical or spiritual pain. It's emotional, it's psychological, it's everything. It is full on, whole, whole, holistic judgment and wrath and damnation and terrorizing that falls on those who are against God's king. All my enemies will be shaken with terror. And not only that, they will turn back and suddenly be disgraced. They'll be shamed. They'll be disgraced. When will they be disgraced? At the final judgment. When God comes in final salvation to deliver us from our pain and our disorientation and our sins, he will come to finally and suddenly judge and disgrace all of those who oppose his king, David's greater son, Jesus Christ, the final king. And David knows this is future. So he says, how long, Lord? I don't know how long. It could be many years until God answers your prayer and gives final salvation, final judgment. But it will come. There is a great white throne judgment according to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, where everyone's works will be judged. And those names who are not in the book of life, who are not in in line with the king, David's son, Jesus the Messiah, they will be thrown into the lake of fire after being shamed and disgraced in the great white throne judgment. I want to ask a question here before we even um, close. What makes people God's enemies? What makes these people God's enemies? Look at verse eight. Depart from me all what? Evildoers. So what do they do? They do evil. And in verse 10, it says, all my enemies will be ashamed. So what makes someone God's enemies? They're evildoers, verse eight, and they are enemies of who? Of King David. They oppose David. David is the dividing line between who's on God's side and who's against him because he is God's Messiah. That's what Psalm 2 does. Psalm 2, if you read Psalm 2, it combines God's anointed one, his Messiah, and Yahweh together, that if you oppose one, you oppose the other. And if you're for one, you're for the other. You're either for Yahweh and his Messiah or you're against Yahweh and his Messiah. You can't have it any other way. That's Psalm 2. And so that's what makes God's enemies God's enemies. So let's apply this. What word do you have for your enemies, God's enemies, when you're in pain? Do you warn them about the coming judgment or are you silent? Do you only speak of encouraging things to them and maybe shoot the breeze about the weather, the pandemic, politics, work, family? David models for us that we are to pronounce the coming judgment, pronounce the coming punishment while we're under pressure while we're disoriented. In our pain, we proclaim the coming judgment and the coming salvation. So Christian, seize your pressure as your platform for your gospelizing, for your gospel pronouncements. Seize your pressure, seize your pain as your platform for gospel proclamation. Use your pain as your pulpit to preach judgment and salvation in Christ. Just like Paul, when he was boasting in his weakness in prison in Philippians one, or as we're gonna learn tonight from Peter Jung in our evening Zoom meeting, that Paul prayed with his thorn in the flesh, in his weakness, he exalted Christ. Church family, let's pray for each other to pronounce Christ boldly. Let's pronounce him together as a church. Let's pronounce in pairs scattered across LA. I mean, and let's pronounce this as a church. Isn't that what we do? What, what does our church confess to this confused world from our, confession of our, from our confession of faith? Here we have our BBC confession of faith. What do we proclaim as a church to this confused world who doesn't understand God's message and God's truth? Here's what we proclaim. Article 23. The judgment. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world by Jesus Christ. When everyone shall receive according to his deeds, the wicked shall go into everlasting and conscious punishment, the righteous in their glorified bodies into everlasting life in the new creation. That's what we believe. Final judgment. I encourage you to copy and paste this and post it on your social media accounts just to proclaim as a church, to proclaim as a Christian, the final judgment. If you're not a Christian, just know this, judgment is coming for us all. It's inescapable, inescapable. John 3.36 says the one who believes in Jesus has life, Um, but the one who doesn't believe in Jesus, God's wrath remains on him. So if you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Christ, God's wrath remains on you. So what will you do? We're pleading with you to trust in Jesus and repent from your sins. Now you might say, why are you Christians so pushy? You're so pushy with your way. It has to be your way. We have to trust in your Jesus and your, your Bible. Why can't you just love us and let us be? Well, we do want to love you, but we can't let you be any more than you would let us be if you loved us. And we were in a – so if I was in a house burning and I was in my balcony and I'm just greeting you, hey, how you doing? And um, my house is burning behind me and I don't see it burning. You can see the fire coming up and I don't see it or sense it yet. If you don't say, hey, PJ dude, there's a fire, get out, run. If you don't warn me and call me to flee, if you're like, I don't wanna offend him, I'm gonna let him be, I'm gonna let him do his own thing, I'm gonna do my own thing, I don't want him to be upset with me, and then I end up burning in the fire and dying, that wouldn't be love. Even if I got mad at you and said, nah, don't tell me that, don't push your view of fires on me. The loving thing to do would be to urgently and honestly plead with the person to run from the danger. And that's what we're doing as Christians. We believe that God is God and that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, God's Son, and God, very God, and that He's coming in judgment. And so we're warning you in love. So we ask you to at least consider these things. Now, Christians, don't assume, if you're a professing Christian or a member of the church, don't assume too quickly that you're on the Messiah's side. You might be. I trust and hope you are. But you might not be. You need to ask yourself, am I really on the side of the Messiah? Do I actually... Um, or do I actually do things that oppose the Messiah or belittle him or displace him, displace him or marginalize him or heartlessly, or maybe I, my, I honor him with my lips, but my heart is far from him. Matthew 15, eight, you know, here in Psalm six, eight, depart from me, all evil doers. Do you hear an echo of where that is in the new Testament? Depart from me, all evil doers. That's right. If you know this Matthew seven, where, um, Jesus tells people to enter by the narrow gate in Matthew 7. He tells them that um, there are false prophets in the world, but you'll recognize them by their fruit. And then he says this in, um, in, in Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out many demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Am I, aren't, aren't I a member of a church? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers, you lawbreakers. There's a quote from Psalm 6.8. Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And so he says, everyone who hears the words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock that withstands a storm. But if you hear God's word and you don't do it, you're like a man who builds his house on the sand. When the storm comes, it collapses. And on judgment day, you will be disgraced Christian are you really on Christ's side do you really trust him do you hear his words and follow him in your trials or do you only hear his words but don't follow him is there something right now in your life that you know the Lord wants you to do wants you to follow him in and you refuse to follow or you're disobediently hesitating repent trust in Jesus Ask him to help you and follow him where he leads you instead of just hearing and hesitating. So here's the main goal of the whole thing. Proceed with God when you can't see your way forward so that you experience his salvation. How will we proceed with God when we can't see our way forward? By praying under pressure and by pronouncing the coming punishment. Now David, as a sinner, prayed in verse Four, save me because of your faithful love. Save me. And God would save David even though he sinned. Why would God save sinful David, the sinful king, where justice demands that God would punish him for his crimes? Why would God save him? Why would God save people like us? Because Jesus had come to save. You know, in John chapter 12, Jesus comes to the end of his ministry with his disciples and he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it doesn't bear fruit. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he says, whoever loves his life will lose it, but the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's if they lose their life and follow Jesus. And then Jesus, this is the end of his ministry and he feels this burden. Unless a grain of the wheat dies, unless someone loses his life, he can't save it. And he feels this burden, And then he says this in John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then it says, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus continued, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. David prays, save me from this hour. And God would save David because Jesus would not pray. Jesus did not pray, save me from this hour. Instead, he prayed, Father, glorify your name. And so Jesus, even as he asked for the cup to be passed from, ultimately said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So, God, Jesus would not finally pray, save me from this hour of judgment and death. So that David could pray, so that we could pray, Father, save us from this hour of judgment and the second death, the eternal death. And we know that God will save us because he did not save Jesus on that cross. He could have, but he didn't. And Jesus didn't want to be saved from that cross. He he didn't pray, save me from this hour. Glorify your name, Father, in my death, that I might save all of the sinners who will pray, save me from my sins, save me from death, save me from judgment, save me from the brokenness and pain of this world, ultimately, praise God that Jesus didn't pray, save me from this hour, but instead he prayed, Father, glorify your name on the cross. So how do we honor God when we feel convicted and guilty? How do we honor God when our guilt combines with the sins and pressures of this world to crush us? Here's my call to you. Have a time of prayer. Here's my challenge to you. Have a time of prayer where you call one of the members of our church, you get on a FaceTime call or a Zoom call, a video call, and you meet with another member of our church and you spend time say, hey, let's pray for 10 minutes or five minutes. Let's do a prayer of confession. Let's confess our sins to the Lord. Let's lament over the brokenness of our lives and of this world and of our church family. Let's mourn together. Let's ask God for help. And let's remember his covenant promises to us in Christ. That's my challenge to you to call another church member, schedule it today, figure out who you want to pray with and ask like, hey, can I pray with you? If you don't have anyone to pray with, um, text me or call me or the pastors and we'll find someone for you or we'll do it ourselves to pray with you and to confess our sins and lament and ask God for help in our pain. Let's grow in our prayer and practice of lament together. Let's walk together and walk toward God in our pain. If you do this, if you lament and pray to God, if you don't do this, you'll continue in your despair. Guilt will dominate you and you'll feel distant from the Lord further and um, even more disoriented. But if you pray to God in your pain, even with God's people, God will visit you and meet you in his time and in his way when it's right, as you trust in him, as you pray with your covenant community. So just one baby step That's the one baby step here. If you're overwhelmed with grief and pain, the one baby step is pray to God and cry out to God for forgiveness and for help and salvation and mourn and lament and ask him how long and do it with church family. Pray to the Lord under pressure and pronounce the coming judgment to those who are apart from Christ and pronounce that coming judgment even among the people of Christ. Let's pray. Give me a moment to pray on your own and then I'll close. Father, have mercy on us. Be gracious to us. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our hidden faults, our unintentional sins and our intentional sins. Cleanse us, Lord. Meet us here, Lord. Help us, save us, and deliver us. How long? Until you come. Lord Jesus, come soon. We need you. Meet us, Lord, in our lamenting, and our confessing, and our praying together this week as a church family.